0: This is Crystal Brando with Policy Research Associates and the National Center for Youth Opportunity and Justice. As part of our School Responder Model podcast series, this discussion will feature Gina Bracey and Jeff Vanderplug from the Child Health and Development Institute in Connecticut, as well as two additional guests from Connecticut, Erica Triani with Bristol Public Schools and Tiffany Hubrens with Wheeler Clinic. The four will discuss the role of schools as responders in the school responder model, or the R in the SRM. There'll be conversation about engaging with behavioral health collaborators and how to respond differently to students with behavioral health needs to help keep them in school and out of the juvenile legal system. They'll talk about the role of mobile crisis in Connecticut, as well as offer recommendations for schools and districts that don't have mobile crisis in their communities, yet are still seeking ways to improve their responses to students with behavioral health conditions.
1: Welcome, everybody, and, and thanks again to Policy Research Associates for giving us an opportunity to talk about a topic that means a lot to us. Uh, I want to start uh, today by introducing myself. My name is Jeff Vanderplug, I'm the CEO at the Child Health and Development Institute. And I also want to introduce you to the guests that we have today who will be talking about school responder models and um, collaborations with behavioral health providers. I'll start by asking Erica Triani to introduce herself to us.
2: Hi, my name is Erica Triani. I work for Bristol Public Schools, and I am the Director of Climate and Culture and Family Engagement for our district.
1: Thank you, Erica. And Tiffany Hubrens, would you introduce yourself too?
3: Hi, my name is Tiffany Hubrens. I work at Wheeler Clinic, and I oversee the Mobile Crisis um, Intervention Services, and I'm very happy to be here.
1: Welcome, Tiffany. Thanks for being here. And finally, uh, my colleague here at CHTI, Gina Bracey.
4: Hello, my name is Gina Bracey. I'm the Associate Vice President for School and Community Initiatives at the Child Health and Development Institute.
1: Thank you, Gina. And we're really excited about this topic. And um, we've talked about internally about um, putting the responder, putting the R in the school responder model as a topic for this. So, but... To be more specific about what we're going to be discussing today, we're, we're interested in exploring the role of behavioral health collaborations in reducing exclusionary discipline um, in particularly in the implementation of school responder models. So uh, we're gonna I'm gonna start actually by telling folks a little bit more about um, what we mean when we're talking about responders in a school responder model and, and the role that behavioral health. Plays here in Connecticut in our version of a school responder model, which we call the School Based Diversion Initiative. And Gina will be telling you all a little bit more about what SBDI is and how it functions in this uh, state. But I'll start just by telling you a little bit about behavioral health in our model. So we believe um, in school based diversion from the time we started about 11 years ago that having an alternative behavioral health response in a school responder model was a very critical element. And we were fortunate in our state to have access to a mobile crisis intervention service. And um, some across the country sometimes refer to these models as mobile response and stabilization services or MRSS. So in Connecticut, our mobile crisis intervention system is a statewide program. There are 14 provider sites located throughout the state and collectively, those 14 provider sites cover every town and city in the state, including every school and school district. So when a, um, even before or outside of our school responder model, anytime there's a behavioral health need or a behavioral health emergency going on, mobile crisis in our state is available to every school who is interested in having them come out. Um, and so that's why we have the guests we have on the line today from a school and from a mobile crisis provider in our state is because it plays a really critical function in our behavioral health system of care and is a tremendous support to our school responder model work as well. Um, so outside of the providers, there's also in our state a call center. So if you need to access mobile crisis in our state, you dial two one one, one you press a couple of buttons, you talk to a a triage clinician who takes down some basic information, and then your call is routed to the local mobile crisis provider in the state that covers the town or city where you're located. And usually within 20 to 30 minutes, a mobile crisis provider is um, at your school or in your home or wherever else in the community the need is present and providing crisis stabilization services to you and your family. So that's a really another important feature of our work is the statewide call center. And then finally, the third component of our mobile crisis work is um, a performance improvement center, which is the piece that CHDI operates, where we're responsible for data analysis, reporting and workforce development for the statewide network of providers. So that's a little overview of how mobile crisis works in our state. I want to turn it over to Gina to talk a little bit about how we were able to leverage our mobile crisis model here to help develop the school-based diversion initiative. And um, and she can also tell you a little bit about our history of working with PRA in that respect. So go ahead, Gina.
4: Great. Thank you, Jeff. Um, yes, I'm happy to share with you more about our school-based diversion initiative in Connecticut and how it works in our relationship with mobile crisis and policy research associates. Um, the school-based diversion model in Connecticut was originally funded by a grant from the MacArthur Foundation, Models for Change Mental Health Juvenile Justice Action Network, back in 2009, and we have worked really closely with PRA since that time, who has been instrumental in providing technical assistance and support to us in Connecticut but also for disseminating this work nationally through the school responder model to other states and communities. And our model, as Jeff had mentioned, really incorporates a focus on mobile crisis as our responder in Connecticut. And we have really three core components of our model. And that's one primary primary component is connecting with school and community-based services and supports um, in a collaborative model, collaborative method that can really help provide uh, that that behavioral health service that's necessary to prevent that exclusionary discipline happening in the schools. We also have a workforce development component where we're training resource officers, schools, personnel, teachers, and staff in helping them to recognize trauma and mental health concerns and how to better utilize services like mobile crisis in their community. Um, And also to use those to really develop internal school policy and capacity building to help implement restorative practices, to help guide a model of discipline intervention that that really kind of pulls all of these goals together. Um, So as Jeff mentioned, the the mobile crisis teams in Connecticut really are robust in that we are able to have access to them across all of our schools in our area and to really respond in that moment when there might be a challenging behavior or not quite sure what what the student needs in order to help get through a difficult situation. So we are very happy to be here today with some of our core uh, partners in this work in Connecticut who have done a fantastic job in really utilizing these components and, and implementing this work in their own area. And um, I'm actually going to start by bringing in one of our speakers, Erica Triani, um, from Bristol Public Schools, and ask her about how schools actually make that decision in the moment about responding to challenging behavior. Um, Can you tell us about who might be involved or what factors help determine if you're calling the police or using other options? How's this work for your schools, Erica?
2: Sure. Sure. well, we think it's critical that schools develop the skills and awareness of our teams, as well as the individuals that are responding to the challenging behaviors. Um, a purposeful and a planful response is what we aim for. Having a clear and consistent expectations um, for it, whether it being the social emotional support staff our teachers or administrators is really um, critical to our mission, um, With dealing with um, challenging behaviors. Who's involved? Um, In most of our buildings, we have implemented a um, graduated response model to deal with our behaviors in the school. Our SBDI schools have already been using that, and we found it to be so helpful that we've implemented it in all of our other um, schools within the district. Where we have in our response model, we have a plan in place for which behaviors are handled by teachers, support staff, administrators, or police if necessary. We've worked really hard in our district for the past two years to build strong relationships between staff and students through what we call our crew lessons or advisory circles. Hopefully, um, with that, teachers will be able to respond to the behaviors right there in the classroom. If additional support is needed, they're able to reach out to our support staff. Our support staff will come to the classroom and take some time with the students using restorative questioning or impromptu conversations with a goal of keeping the student in the classroom or getting the student right back into the classroom as soon as possible. If the students are unable to regulate, they're allowed to take some time with our support staff in in a room designed for them to be able to try to regulate themselves. But if the student continues to be dysregulated or in need of um, outside supports, the admin or support staff will then call two one one, which will bring us to our emo- uh, emergency mobile crisis through Wheeler Clinic. Um, basically, what factors determine that? Um, is if the student is able to, to regulate themselves or not. Um, but if we do know, sometimes through our emergency mobile crisis, they're able to get services quicker for our families that we might not be able to within the school.
3: That's,
1: um, Erica, that's really interesting. And thanks for sharing that. And one of the things that we talked about in the lead up to this uh, recording actually is um, this notion that when you talk about responders and the school responder model, um, I think certainly it's critical to have a behavioral health provider. And we're going to hear from Tiffany and how mobile fits that bill here in Connecticut. But it also strikes me that schools uh, and school personnel themselves are responders. They, you know, so there's the, the school responder piece. There's the when you need it. There's the community-based behavioral health responder. So I'm wondering if, if from your perspective, you feel like that's a new role that school personnel have taken on for themselves or a new understanding as a result of SBDI and um, our work with you that they thought of themselves as responders differently.
2: I think it has. Um, I think SBDI has brought that in, especially through um, the training that a lot of our staff have Completed in regards to restorative practices, we've trained more people, and that that normally that wasn't necessarily their role, um, but now through the training and stuff that they have, I do. They absolutely are a responder. If if it's some of our paraprofessionals, we've trained some of our community providers cafeteria staff all of that we're all using common language so they're the first line so I, I look at them as all school responders.
1: Thank you that that's really I think that's an important lesson for schools who might be listening to this podcast is this shift that can take place when schools are doing an SRM model to think differently about their role in in disciplinary process, right? So it it can be sometimes that you think of yourself as, okay, well, what's our disciplinary protocol here? As opposed to saying, how do we respond differently? How do we change the way that we respond to disciplinary issues and instead um, take on the framework of supporting students as opposed to thinking first about how do we we punish or how do we um, address disciplinary issues using punitive approaches?
2: right? Because they're all part of our community and kids need to realize that, like, you know, we're invested in them and we want them to succeed and we're trying to keep them in our buildings as much as possible. So, yep, yeah.
1: That's wonderful. And, um, you know, let's shifting now to talking with with Tiffany, you know, um, as Erica was talking about Tiffany, there, there are times when the school really has built a lot of capacity to respond differently to behavioral incidents that take place. Um, But when it exceeds their capacity to respond, Tiffany, I think what we've established here in Connecticut is this um, access to mobile crisis intervention services, which is where you and your team come in. So the first question I have for you, Tiffany, is just how this this role of mobile crisis and the philosophy that they've adopted in mobile crisis, where crisis is defined by caller, impacts your ability to respond to school needs. Can you talk with us a little about that?
3: Thank you, Jeff. Our philosophy in Connecticut for mobile crisis intervention services, also known as MCIS, is if it's a crisis to the caller, it's a crisis to us. Mobile crisis clinicians can respond to many crisis and pre-crisis events like extreme dysregulation, aggression towards others, property destruction, suicidal ideation, problems with focusing, school refusal, homicidal ideation community crises, like a loss of a peer, and many other presenting concerns. Mobile crisis clinicians will assess the needs of the youth in a micro and macro way, such as it may be that a youth is performing poorly in school, having problems with focusing, and has a lack of interest in things the youth once enjoyed. Once mobile crisis is called and after a youth is assessed by a crisis clinician, it may be found that the youth has had a recent trauma or or is adjusting to a change in home or community. The opportunity that mobile crisis provides to schools and the rest of the community is that we see the symptoms, which could be, for example, lack of interest and poor performance in school. And then we can assess the youth and connect the youth to community providers, which could prevent further crises in the future, which could subsequently um, prevent referrals to the juvenile justice systems, or um, trips to the emergency department.
1: That's great, Tiffany. Thanks. Um, As you were talking about the different types of situations that mobile responds to, I'm just wondering what you think about, um, either from your own experience or from the people who you supervise on the mobile crisis teams, what kinds of behaviors are you seeing in a school that you think would place a student potentially at risk for being arrested if a mobile crisis wasn't available to respond?
3: So um, very good question. Thank you. Um, so some of those things would be like, you know, what I mentioned before, like property destruction, um, also like oppositional behavior, um, you know, kids who often have fights with peers or arguing. And, you know, just basically having a whole lot of defiant behaviors that absolutely, I think, would be some of the reasons why the police department would be called.
1: That's interesting. And do you ever find that you're responding with school resource officers, for example, where you're jointly or collaboratively working with an SRO to respond to something?
3: Yes, we definitely do. Um, That, you know, that's kind of like it's important for us to collaborate and really work with the SROs, you know, because a lot of times we found that, you know, a different perspective and also someone who's more aware of the situation could be um, really helpful in, you know, dealing with the crisis and getting to a positive outcome at the end.
1: That's great. Thanks, Tiffany. Gina, do you want to ask the next question?
4: Sure. Um, you know, I was wanting to bring Erica to this conversation also. And, um, you know, as, we're, as there is kind of a broad opportunity to define sort of what crisis is or what the need is that you need a response to come to, into the school, um, question for you about how does this help to reduce your need for exclusionary discipline or, or sort of the reliance on exclusionary discipline if you have this, this option available to you? Right. So, I mean, basically,
2: and when you're simply not every incident requires a clinical response, right? So, developmentally, conflict is appropriate. Um, so, we're attempting to build the skills and and reduce, you know, maladaptive responses or behaviors. Um, all non-emergency responses are, we're really looking at characterizing by exploring the incident and identifying the ex- the essential components. But looking at even with our school resource officers and EMPS, um, our school resource officers, we, we try to, they, they've been trained in a lot of trauma-informed practices, and they've gone through our restorative practices, trainings, and and we really use them not to deal with classroom behaviors, such as talking back or refusing to turn in cell phones or insubordination. But we really include our SROs when statutorily um, we think a law has been broken mm-hmm. and we have the obligation to follow up with the police. But working with EMPS, we we just had a situation last week where a child in our school was um, extremely dysregulated. And um, the school resource officer worked with, I believe EMPS was called, and ultimately um, the child did have to leave by ambulance, but it was a case where initially, before we explored the situation, we thought possibly we needed the police um, because this child was so dysregulated. But once we were able to process and work through the situation, the child was able to get the help that they needed. So instead of it ending in an arrest or an out-of-school suspension, um, the child was able to get the help that they needed. So,
4: Thank you for sharing that. That's a fantastic example. Um, And it really goes to show that it's really a collaborative approach. So you talked Mm -hmm. about some of the decision-making process and also a multiple-factor approach where this is part of a coordinated response. It includes the discipline policy changes and restorative practices where you're implementing a, a different type of response to really respond to the behavior. That's great. And I just want to note too, I know a couple of times you mentioned EMPS and that used to be, that was the name that that our mobile crisis program in Connecticut was formerly referred to. And I know it still is often referred to that as well. So I just wanted to clarify for listeners that might've heard that EMPS reference. Um, but I also wanted to bring Tiffany back into this conversation, too, because we've talked a lot about Connecticut's model, and we do recognize that other states or counties implementing a school responder model may not have a mobile crisis service available to them that that functions in the way ours does in Connecticut, or it may not be as flexible in its ability to respond to such a wide range of, of calls or situations So Tiffany, if you could share with us, what would your advice be for districts that don't have a mobile crisis program, but they want to provide a behavioral health or crisis stabilization response and referral uh, process that can reduce the need for police intervention?
3: My advice to districts would be starting off the school year with a trauma screener and a suicide risk screener and administrating these screeners every three to four months. This will help with identifying youth who will need crisis intervention services in the moment or in the near future. You could also invite ideas from community members and organize collaboratives to work towards building relationships with families, schools, community providers, so that they can work together to bridge the gap of the need for crisis response services in schools. Also, you could um, utilize school social workers to provide crisis stabilization and refer youth to providers in the community. community. Developing school-based clinics with the clinician to provide assessments within the school could be a useful tool as well. Having a partnership with care coordination services in your school district could be a great resource, as this could allow for services that are not well known, be more accessible so that the youth is successfully connected to the appropriate service.
4: That's great. I love that you brought up the the school family community partnership approach and gave examples of each of those. I'm wondering, Erica, do you have anything that you would like to share with that as well in terms of? structures that schools could use or resources that schools can use to help in the responder function? Yeah, definitely
2: using um, community-based providers. I think that is such an important thing. We need to engage our community, um, have our families know who the community providers are. But community-based providers in the school is a positive step in the right directions. Right now, Almost all of our schools have um, community-based mental health providers within the school, which is which is great. Um, if we could have the health clinics that can manage the needs of our students and families, that would definitely be a welcome resource. Um, but centralizing these services within the schools, I think just makes the most sense. These are where our kids are, and these are when we hear about services that, that need to happen for our kids. Definitely having it central to the school, I think is very important.
4: So Erica, as you're telling us about all of the changes that have been made in your district to incorporate the school responder model through the school-based diversion initiative, can you tell us a little bit more about, was that process different before SBDI versus during or after SBDI? How did that process work for you?
2: Yeah, it's definitely different um, since SBDI has come into our schools. Our SBDI schools spent a lot of time creating their graduated response models um, with the behaviors within the school. Um, And through SBDI, I was able to become a trainer of trainers in restorative practices, which allowed us to train our emotional support staff and restorative practices and restorative conferences as well as train our youth service bureaus in restorative conferencing so they are now able to facilitate conferences as a neutral party Um, if students do need to be um, sent out of school for an out of school suspension Um, If it was a situation where the staff member was quote unquote harmed, we're able to have our youth service bureaus come in as a neutral party to facilitate that conference in order to welcome the child back into our community. And our um, district's climate and culture committee and central offices were able to um, use restorative conferencing as a... um, what do I want to say? As a diversionary from an out of school suspension, our SROs are, have used um, an incident where a summons has been replaced with a restorative conferencing. So instead of an arrest happening, we have, um, our SROs have utilized restorative conferencing instead of issuing a summons for a student when they felt it was appropriate. So that's some of the stuff that. The school-based diversion initiative has helped us reduce our exclusionary practices.
4: That's such a great explanation of restorative practices and how that really fits that role of what do you do differently when you are, you know, much of this initiative is telling you what not to do. So don't arrest, don't suspend, don't expel, and respond differently. But how do you do that? And I know a lot of times with, with our work, the teachers and school staff often ask us, how, how do we do this? What is, the, what is the new thing you want us to do? Or how do we approach this differently? And restorative practices really fit is that component and is a core component of SBDI and school responder models more broadly. So thank you for giving us a really good description of how that yeah. Really and, implemented,
2: Yeah. And one other thing too, it's really made us cognizant of thinking, is this something that we should be calling mobile crisis for? And so we have been utilizing mobile crisis more than we have in the past in order to get those community supports or clinical services to our students. So that's something through the school-based diversion initiative that we've been utilizing mobile crisis more in those situations.
1: So Tiffany, um, having heard all that from from Erica and from Gina, uh, a question for you is how do you go about linking to ongoing services after this crisis moment is over?
3: Following the crisis moment, mobile crisis will complete extensive safety planning, which would involve the youth guardian school and community-wide provider with the guardian's permission. In the meantime, the crisis clinician will provide follow-up care based on the youth's acuity. Depending on the needs of the youth and or family, mobile crisis clinicians will decide on an appropriate level of care based off the youth's level of risk and the youth and or family's need. Mobile crisis will make recommendations for treatment, which could include outpatient therapy, intensive outpatient and partial hospitalization services, in-home services, educational advocacy services, and care coordination.
1: That's really helpful. Um, it's, I think mobile in, in our state plays a really critical role in making the connection to that next level of care. I want to stop though and, and actually acknowledge something that's we haven't talked about yet today, which is the issue of, of equity. Um, and particularly racial and ethnic equity. One of the things that I know was very influential for us when we developed or helped develop the school based diversion initiative model 11 years ago is the data that so clearly indicated that um, children of students of color were the most likely to experience exclusionary discipline, in, including in school arrest. And one thing that I've observed in the data in mobile response or mobile crisis here in our state is that uh, young people of color tend to use mobile crisis at higher rates than you would expect based on their uh, pop the population. So, so just as an example, if if 15% of the population in Connecticut are African American youth. Um, utilization of mobile crisis when you look at it by race ethnicity might be twenty percent, for example. So it tends to be overutilized um, by students of color, and that's something that I guess you could think about it a couple of different ways. But I'm, um, I, I think I, I'm interested to hear from both of you, Erica and Tiffany. You know what you think about um, mobile crisis as a way of reaching students of color in particular.
2: For me, listening to that data, because that's not something that I'm normally made aware of for mobile crisis, but that would make me wonder one of two things. Is it disproportionately higher for students of color because they didn't initially have access to mental health care and treatment? And if that's the case, then maybe they would be utilizing um, EM or mobile crisis more often in in that case. And then that could be used as a tool to bridge them to community supports and services.
1: Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I was getting at. And and Tiffany, I'd love to hear your perspective on this as well. Um, Just how, in your experience, how mobile crisis is has been useful for reaching very diverse populations across the state.
3: You know, my experience is, is that a lot of times, um, and I can't speak for all situations, but there are times, especially remembering when I was a clinician out in the field some years ago, is that there was kind of like some level of a ta- taboo for families who were of color when it came to mental health, when it came to externalized aggressive behaviors and um, mobile crisis became like a linkage to some of those families because you know they had someone to be there and assess the child and also then give the family um psychoeducation about you know w- what all of this means and how all the experiences that the child had in his life resulted into, you know, these symptoms and these behaviors. And so then once the parents understand it, then there's an opportunity where we can kind of discuss what, what happens next, you know, how can we help this um, youth? So it really, I think it's been an opportunity to really educate families um, of color.
1: It's a fascinating response, really, from both of you. It's It sounds like from what I'm hearing that mobile may play a, a pretty important role in, in reducing stigma, um, that it, it tends to be more accessible and more, um, I suppose, uh, just feasible, feasible might not be the right word, but families just tend to latch onto it easier than other parts of the behavioral health system is what I'm hearing. And, and also, I think in general, I th- the research tells us that Accessing services in schools as opposed to community-based clinics can be also another way to break down barriers that families might feel related to stigma or or other barriers that get in the way of them accessing services when they're located in an office. So, I, I
2: would have to agree with that in, in thinking in the past, different cultures are resistant to... Counseling services. And with it being within the school, some of the families have been more open to receiving clinical services if they're not having to go someplace to get it. For whatever reason, with it being within the school, the families have been more open to receiving the services in the building.
1: Really interesting. Um, it made me think of another thing. I'm making lots of connections here as you both talk, which is good. Um, it's been a really interesting conversation. But one other thing that we we think about in our school-based diversion, and I'd love to hear your perspectives on it, um, the difference between when you observe a difficult behavior, a challenging behavior for a student in the school, um, thinking about it as a behavioral problem as opposed to a behavioral health problem. Does that resonate with either one of you as a as a useful way of kind of turning the curve as, as it were, when it comes to exclusionary discipline?
2: Yeah. Like I was saying before, not every behavioral incident is a clinical response, right? It's, it's normal to have conflicts and, and, and developmentally, what we're trying to do is attempting to build the skills of these students and um, in order to explore, you know, identifying the components and building the skills and spending time as behavioral teams to look at the behaviors and see what was happening before the behavior incident. What um, was the student asked to do right before? What was the triggers to try to find ways to support the students and able, help them identify, use the language. I'm feeling this way and that's why I'm acting this way. So we really, we're aiming for positive growth to see these situations and and opportunities for for change. So that way it doesn't become um, a bigger issue.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. And it's what I'm hearing you say is in part, part of the work is normalizing Uh, behavior right Um, that things are going to go wrong sometimes it doesn't mean that a student needs to be arrested and it doesn't even necessarily mean that they need a clinical intervention sometimes they do Um, and tiffany like how do you go about sorting that out as a mobile crisis provider you know how do you sort out what represents just normal adolescent behavior that sometimes happens versus a clinical need
3: thank you jeff There is no exact equation to sort out the difference between normal adolescent behavior and adolescents who has a clinical need, but there are a few things that you can consider. So the things that you would want to think about is, has the adolescent had any noticeable change in their mood, any changes in sleep pattern, poor performance in school that is below the adolescent's baseline? Recent events of adjustment to a new situation or environment or has experienced any recent or past traumatic events One thing I think is important to note is that Oftentimes the guardian caregiver and or the parent are the experts of knowing when something is not quite right with the adolescents I also believe that school staff have good insight regarding those adolescents as they spend a number of hours with them Ultimately, when there is a noticeable change with the adolescent, reach out to a school social worker, to a crisis intervention service, or a mental health professional.
4: Thank you, Tiffany. That's really helpful in order to kind of how you tease that apart and really looking at the individual child and all of this too. And I think, you know, the the last few minutes of this conversation really points to applicable lessons for all schools or communities that are really implementing this school responder model um, in terms of the importance of relationships and really knowing the child and the community that you're working with, uh, building trust among families, and particularly around ongoing communication for that care process. And there are multiple steps in this process. Um, it, it, so I'm curious, I'll, I'll start with you, Erica. How do you ensure g- good communication between the behavioral health provider and the school kind of before, during, and after a mobile crisis response?
2: I think it starts with good non-crisis communication. In some instances, a communication plan that identifies the roles and responsibilities before a situation act occurs. Mm -hmm. Um, We have found that activities that build respect and trust as well as commitment to a debrief after critical instances, um, when a debrief happens, it allows for the opportunity for people to kind of say what worked, what didn't work. And that's really what's invaluable. When we're able to share um, that was great when you did this. Next time, can you please do that? Open lines of communication and being open to improvements are all really important variables. Um, in addition, it eliminates the obstacles. Um, sometimes if we have shared forms, releases, et cetera, it makes it easier for families to be able to navigate both systems, the the behavioral health, as well as the school. So if we can streamline that and make that as as easy as possible, I think that that's a good form of communication.
4: Right. I love that. When you talk about a non-crisis communication plan, so it's not just what's happening in that moment, but what happened before and after it, what's all the context and, and and what worked well and what didn't. Having that debrief process is really important. I'm glad you, you mentioned both of those things. Um, I'd like to give Tiffany an opportunity to respond as well in terms of your view on, on terms of how how do you ensure good communication uh, from your perspective in the mobile crisis world, um, connecting to the school before, during, and after the response?
3: Thank you, Gina. Mobile crisis in Connecticut is a voluntary service, so it's very important that crisis clinician get consent for services from the guardian of the youth to ensure communication with providers. Mobile crisis will obtain release of information for each provider, which could include the primary care physician, the therapist, and the school. Um, mobile crisis will maintain regular communication with the school and community v- providers with updates as needed. And um, including, but not limited to recommendations made to the youth and family referrals that were completed and the level of support the youth needs, um, during the time of the episode of care.
1: So, uh, I just want to wrap up here and, and thank, um, both Erica Triani, um, and also Tiffany Hubrens for joining us on this podcast and, Um, For the listeners out there, hopefully this information was helpful for you about how you engage with behavioral health collaborators. Um, I think what we learned a lot today, um, but we learned a lot about how schools themselves are part of the responders, and also that your community behavioral health providers out there can also be helpful in responding to student incidents that take place. So. just want to thank again uh, both Erica and Tiffany for joining us today and also thank Gina Bracey for being part of this conversation and um, I'll kick it over to PRA to wrap us up.
0: Thank you so much Jeff and thank you to all four of you Jeff, Gina, Erica, and Tiffany for joining us in this conversation today. We really hope this was helpful for the schools and communities listening to this podcast series and seeking to enhance or improve their school responder models or otherwise learn from some successful models across the country. For our listeners, if you would like to learn more about school responder models, including having the ability to access some materials made available by CHDI, please visit our virtual toolbox online at srm.policyresearchinc.org. So thank you once again to all of our speakers and thank you to our listeners.